As many of you know, at the end of last year, um, after uh, around Bryant's birthday, uh, we bought a puppy, brought her home. She's now seven, eight months. And some of you know the difficulties that we have had with this puppy, uh, how she doesn't necessarily chew up our furniture, but she loves to snag things. Uh, Emerson's little stuffed George, uh, the monkey, uh, Curious George, is her favorite thing to snatch and grab. Just yesterday, I happened to be in the bedroom as she was coming around the corner to climb under our bed so she could gnaw on it, and she saw me standing there and stopped in her tracks, knowing that she was guilty and knowing that she was caught. And I had to wrestle George out of her mouth. But when she's in that space where she knows that she's got something that she doesn't need or she doesn't want, she loves to run underneath our bed where she feels safe because Sarah and I were gifted by her great aunt with a king-size bed. And so it's just enough that when she gets to one side of it, I can't reach her. It's low enough that I can't get under there. We're at the point Emerson's the only one who can get after her. (laughs) Oh, it's fun to sick him under there um, after the dog, right? But she goes to that place of darkness. She goes to that place where she feels safe. But even though she is there, she's doing something that is really ultimately dangerous to her. And she's grabbed things that if she ingests, it could ultimately lead to her death. And so we're trying to get her out of there, not so that we can punish her, but ultimately because we love her and care for her and want to save her life. What we see in Scripture is that that's not merely true of the pets that we have and the animals in our lives. That's true of us. That we are people who are creatures comfortable in the darkness who must be coaxed and drawn into the light. John actually says that at the beginning of his gospel. There in the beginning, he says that Jesus was sent as the, as the light. But in John 3, 19, just a couple of verses after the verse that we all know so well in the midst of the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you work with an abused child or an abused woman, you can understand how frustrating it can sometimes be that despite the danger that is there, it takes a lot of time and care and, and a lot of, of patience to convince them that it's actually safer in the dark, to stop protecting the one that is hurting them, and step out and speak the truth that justice might prevail. And in the same way in our lives where there is sin in ourselves and in our lives, oftentimes we flee into the darkness. We run from one another. We run just like Adam and Eve from God into the darkness and we must be drawn out of it again and again and again and again. And John sets out from the beginning of his gospel to the end of the gospel to convince us that Jesus Christ was the one sent on a mission into the darkness to draw us into the light. That Jesus Christ is in fact the king who died to deliver us from the very darkness which we find so comfortable. That we might receive light and life. Look with me, if you will, in John chapter 19. We're going to read in the second half of verse 16. Unfortunately, our computer program doesn't let me split the verses in half, so we're going to pick up halfway through this. John says, so they took Jesus... 
And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to, to see whose it is. They, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the testimony of your word, for your grace and for your mercy, for your love and for your compassion. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in this time you would take your word, that you would awaken our hearts to be moved and motivated, not just to be filled, Heavenly Father, with information, though that is important, but allow that information to shape our hearts, our minds, our lives into sacrifices, living sacrifices for your name and for your glory as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as we fix our faith upon the one who died in our place, that we might live with him. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. Again, as we stand here kind of on the cusp of Holy Week, instead of preaching the crucifixion because I want to preach the resurrection on Easter, we're spending this morning that is the typical day that we remember Christ's entry into Jerusalem, focusing on his crucifixion to prepare our hearts and our lives for the week that is to come. And we're hearing from one who in these verses declares himself to be the one who witnessed it, who who testifies to it, and whose testimony is true. And that one is John, the beloved disciple, who is with Christ and who loved Christ. And John is interested in this passage of Scripture in intentionally communicating some things to us, but specifically this notion of Jesus' identity, of his death, and of his ministry. That Jesus is, in fact, the king who died to deliver us from the darkness and so I want to take that thought and I want to break it down and show you John's emphases in that in the, in throughout this passage of Scripture. First and foremost, John is, is, is emphasizing the indisputable identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the King. John comes here to this part of Christ's life after he has been betrayed, after he has been tried, after he has been convicted, and Pilate publishes the charge against Jesus Christ, naming him to be the king of the Jews. John makes this a very big point in this opening passage of Scripture and opening verses. In fact, it is a point of contention and conflict between the rulers of the Jews and Pilate that Jesus would be called the king of the Jews. You hear that? The rulers of the Jews, the king of the Jews, they're a little bit put off that Jesus has taken their place. They're a little bit frustrated. And so John, throughout this passage of Scripture, begins to show us the indisputable identity of Jesus Christ, namely that he is the king. He is the king, first off, as we see, who's rejected by his people. In the verses that happen right before the verses that we just read, as Jesus is tried... Pilate repeatedly tries to create an opportunity to release Jesus, but the Jewish people refuse. In fact, it culminates in the people declaring, we have no king but Caesar. They reject their heavenly king, and instead they embrace the powers and principalities of the earthly realm. They declare their allegiance to the world. And this isn't something that happened by accident. All the way back in John chapter 1, John foreshadows that this is going to happen. He said back in John chapter 1 verse 11 that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Nevertheless, Pilate in his final act gets his last little jab at these rulers of the Jews. Because he gives Jesus this placard, and only John tells us that the charge that is written against Jesus was published in both, or in Aramaic, in Greek, as well as in Latin. So that all the people, regardless of their native tongue, would understand what it was that Jesus had been convicted of. That he had been convicted of being the king of the Jews. Pilate declares Jesus to be the king of the Jews. And he is killing the king of the Jews. The rulers want 
a caveat. They want to say, no, 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 no. You're not killing our king. You're killing the guy that claimed to be our king. And Pilate said, no. He wouldn't have any of it. Pilate said, I have written what I have written. He is the king of the Jews and is being killed for sedition because he is the king who is over and against Caesar, the rulers of the world. So as part of his indisputable identity, he's rejected by his people. He's also the king, though, that is revealed by Scripture. John's account, there's four accounts, four Gospels. John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is distinct from the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, there are some crossovers, but one of the things that makes John's account stand out against the others is the way that John emphasizes how Jesus' death fulfilled Scripture. I was shocked as I was studying this passage of Scripture and remembering how much, how big of a point it is for Matthew when he is writing his gospel. If you go back and you read the first couple of chapters of the book of Matthew, as, as Matthew is teaching us about the birth of Jesus Christ, he repeatedly proves that this is the way it's supposed to be because he quotes Scripture. He is convinced, or it, it is striving to convince you that the birth of Jesus was what happened according to Scripture, but he makes no references whatsoever when he gets to the crucifixion of Christ, how that was a fulfillment of Scripture. John, on the other hand, in three separate places throughout the verses that we have read this morning, declares that something about Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled Scripture. Two that I think that are important to the point that we're making right here, namely that Jesus is the King, is the reference that is, we find in verse 24. When we find out that the, the soldiers are dividing Jesus' garments among themselves. The reference there is most likely to Psalm 22, verse 18, where David writes, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 28, when Jesus says he thirsted, that's the sec- another place where John says that his, his actions, his death on the cross, fulfilled scriptures. That's most likely a reference to Psalm 69, verse 21, where David writes, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now the reason that these are important is not merely, we'll see in a second, is that they fulfill scripture, but it's who wrote the scriptures. Both of them come from Psalms of David. Where David is writing and, and writing these songs based on the events of his life. David is the king. And he is, these are psalms, songs of the king and of his experience. But John tells us that even then, the prophetic statements of David in the Psalms were meant to be signposts that pointed beyond David to the greater king who was to come. Someone who was the true promised son of David who would be a greater king and a greater man after God's own hearts. And so John tells us that in his death, Jesus actually fills full these statements that David made in Psalm 22 and in Psalm 69. That Jesus is the king, the heir of David, who exceeded even his greatest ancestor. But not only is he the king who is rejected and the king who is revealed by Scripture, he's the king who is reigning even on the cross. When I was, I don't remember how old exactly I was, but I was in Pee Wee's playing baseball. 
And I, for the life of me, could never, I, I was not a good baseball player. I'll just be honest, okay? I, I did what I could, but, but I was the kid who was always distracted. Baseball was just too slow to keep me, and, I'm not, and it was just keep me entertained. But I struggled at the batter at the plate and hitting the ball, and ever doing anything really great. And then all of a sudden, I, rem- I realized, as I put some pieces together, to celebrate the times that I might have gotten out on first, but I advanced a runner to second or third. That even though I sacri- my, I, there was a sacrifice, and though maybe not intentionally, a sacrifice bunt or anything else in baseball is an opportunity that someone is going to be out, and it's going to cost the team that out, but somebody else on the team is going to advance forward. And what we find in Christ's death is that the sacrifice of Christ is not an accident, but is instead something that is intentional, and we see that Jesus, every step of the way, is in charge. This is not something that is happening to him. It is something that he is doing intentionally. In verse 17, it is Jesus who bore his own cross. Yes, we understand that later on, Simon of Cyrene was given the cross to carry the rest of the way. But Jesus did not hide back from or shirk from the cross. Instead, he took his cross upon him. Verse 26 and 27 We see this beautiful passage of Scripture where even though there's injustice going on all around him, as he is being robbed, as he has been beaten, as he's being murdered, as people are mocking him, the king has an eye for caring for the least of these. As he hangs on that cross and his eyes fix upon his mother, We don't know where his biological brothers were at this particular point, but we know that it wasn't until after his resurrection that they were, that they received him as their Lord and Savior and then entered into the church. And so at this particular point, he is the firstborn son. Every bit of history that we can understand from Scripture indicates that Joseph, his father, was most likely dead at this particular point. And so Jesus, as the firstborn son, bears the responsibility of ensuring for the care and the ongoing care of his mother. And in this moment, he ensures that she will be provided for. Even as he is hanging on the cross, dying, and his air in his lungs is valuable at this particular point, he uses it to make two simple statements that ensure the provision of his mother. But even beyond that, I see him welcoming her into something even greater than just her physical provision. As he invites her, not necessarily, there's some, some conjecture, some thinking that maybe John was his cousin, but I don't know that for sure. But I see very clearly there is a uniting of her into the care of a fellow believer. As he welcomes her to be not his mother anymore, but to be a member of the forever family of Christ, uniting her with someone else for her ongoing care. But beyond that, verse 28, it was striking to me as I was meditating on this passage of Scripture. Listen to that again. After these things, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. This is a man who's dehydrated, who's lost no telling how large of an amount of blood, who is dying. And yet he is fully aware of the moment and what he is there to do and when what he has accomplished is finished. 
And so then when we get on into verse 30, he did not have his life taken from him. He gave up his spirit, is what John says. He was in charge from beginning to the end. It was not an accident. It was not a defeat. Instead, when we see Jesus Christ climbing the hill of Calvary and being hung on the tree, what the world would look upon as shame and defeat and despair, the Bible actually says is the very exaltation of Jesus Christ ascending to the throne from which he reigns. And he reigns even over his own death. And that's what John wants to see beyond the fact that he is indisputable identity. He is king. He is the king who died. And John wants us to see throughout this passage of Scripture that it is undeniable that Jesus died. At the time that John was most likely writing his gospel, and even up to this day, there are those who question whether or not Jesus actually physically died. There's many different theories, some of the swoon theory and many different things that they, it was an elaborate hoax. Some went so far as to say, well, Jesus was never really fully human to begin with, so he couldn't possibly have died. There's some that actually believe that when they gave the cross to Simon of Cyrene, it was Simon that was crucified instead of Jesus. But John wants to counter all of that and say beyond a shadow of any doubt, Jesus Christ died. And he wants us to see that his death was demanded by Scripture. Not only does Scripture prove that he was the king, Scripture proves that it was necessary that Jesus Christ died. Earlier in John chapter 12, as Jesus is talking about his death that is to come, the crowds ask him this question. We've heard from the law that, Christ, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? See, contrary to what they had heard, the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission of the Christ, was infinitely more complicated than they ever possibly thought. They thought that the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the King, would come and conquer all things and would be powerful and would restore the national Israel and would reign for all of eternity and there would be no end to his rule, to his reign, and to the joy, and to the peace, and the prosperity that he was going to bring his people. So the fact that he was going to die such a shameful criminal's death was beyond their understanding. But nevertheless, Jesus shows, and John shows in this passage of Scripture, that it was necessary. The three references to Scripture are proof that the suffering of the Christ was appointed by God. That it was the plan all along. The fact that David, the king, writes that he was scourged, that he was beaten, that he, his garments were taken away from him, his clothing was, was stripped and robbed by casting a lot, that he was hungry, he was thirsty, and they mocked him by giving him sour wine. All of those things. Verses 36 and 37, though, are crucial. As John gets down and he talks about the fact that when they came to verify the fact that he was dead, they were going to break his legs, just as they had broken the other two. You see, crucifixion was not a quick process. It could take days. The people that hung on the cross didn't die from blood loss. They died from asphyxiation. They drowned in their own bodily fluids. As they could no longer have the strength as their body weight tore them down to pull themselves up to get a full breath of air, it could take days for someone to die. 
And the Romans were very invested to make sure that it was as painful and prolonged as possible most times. But here there's a sense of urgency because of the day and the holy week that is there. And so they want to ensure that these criminals come down off the cross. And so a way that they could speed up the process was to break the legs. So that then they wouldn't have the strength of their lower body to be able to push themselves up to take a breath. And they would asphyxiate faster. But John tells us in references to Exodus and Numbers and specifically the Passover lamb that was not to have any spot in any blemish and was to have no bones broken. That Jesus was dead before they got a chance to break his bones. Because Jesus was the greater Passover lamb slain that the judgment of the Lord might pass over his people and all those who are in him and under his blood. But beyond that, he was also pierced. And that's a reference to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where the representative of God is slain because of the people's rebellion. The one who is meant to be a stand-in for Yahweh himself is pierced, not because of his unrighteousness, but because of the unrighteousness of the people. John says Christ's death, his being pierced in the side, was proof that he was Yahweh incarnate, the Lord God with clothes on, and that the death of Christ was no accident, but was actually proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. But not only is its death demanded by Scripture, his death was verified by witnesses. I won't belabor this. It's pretty clear from the passage of Scripture that there were lots of people who were there. They were close enough to read what was written above his head. They were close enough to hear him speak, despite the fact that he had very little breath and very little lungs. And there were many different ones of them. There were the rulers of the Jews, the soldiers, the women. But most importantly, there is John himself. And he is emphatic when we come to verse 35 that he is the one who saw it. He is the one who is bearing witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. There's no lies in John. There's no deception in John. John is here to bear witness to what happened to Christ. And one of the things that John is, it finds crucial to our understanding is that Jesus actually died. That we may believe that he died. That we may believe he was who he said he was. But there's also the fact that his death was ensured by the soldiers. There were four men who had one job. Kill these criminals. That's it. They were Roman soldiers whose one job was to make sure that these three men died. And the notion that they somehow failed that job that Jesus managed to fall asleep on the cross and pass the test of these soldiers who were very skilled at this, who were very skilled at making this as cruel and off-putting to witnesses as they possibly could, somehow failed to kill Jesus. The giving of Christ the sour wine, having that there, that's not an act of mercy. That's instead like a hydrating drink. It's not the same drugged drink that the women in the city tried to give Jesus before he got there. Instead, it's like first century Gatorade. When it's mixed with soured wine and the vinegar that's in there and water and diluted and everything else, it's meant to actually give them a little bit of hydration. Why would they want to hydrate somebody that is dying by asphyxiation so that it lasts longer? They are very good at what they're doing. The fact that they take Jesus' clothes and they divide it among themselves is a very clear indication that they have no intention that this man need them anymore. 
And when it all comes down to it, before they, well, before they break his bones and they realize that he's dead, they do everything they can to make sure that he's not trying to trick them, that he hasn't just passed out from the pain or anything else. They take a spear and they stab it into his side. And blood and water flow. And though we might infuse it with greater spiritual meaning now, the water in the blood that flowed from Jesus' side is simply meant to be a testimony that he was really dead. That the soldiers did their job. But beyond this, his death is also confirmed in the fact that they take him and they bury him. And they don't bury him easily. What we find in this passage of Scripture is that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and they take Jesus down from the cross and they wrap him in cloths and 75 pounds of spices and aloe. They wrap his body tight. They care for his body in the same manner as was the custom of the Jews. There is nothing that is different in this. They are caring for the body of Christ in the exact same way, actually maybe a little bit more of an elevated way, with the amount of spices and aloe that they bring to this, but they are doing what they always did with a dead body. There is no indication that they expected Jesus to get back up. If they did expect Jesus to get back up, what's clear from the Scripture is they made it really hard for him to do so. Right? If they expected him to get up two days later, wrapping him in 75 pounds worth of of ointments and spices and cloths and putting a rock in front of his tomb, they made it really hard for him to get back up later. All of that to show and and to declare that his death was on purpose and his death accomplished a purpose. And that purpose is our deliverance. So in this passage of Scripture, we see the indisputable identity of Christ, we see the undeniable death of Christ, but we also see the undeniable deliver, or the unstoppable deliverance of Christ. Jesus is the King who died to deliver us from darkness. His death, first and foremost, delivers us from the darkness of our sin. In a popular hymn that you have heard probably your entire life if you've been in church, Augustus Toplady writes this, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Christ's death on the cross does two things, one negative, one positive. Negative, it cancels the debt of our sin and saves us from God's wrath for our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin deserves God's wrath. But on the positive side, Christ's death on the cross doesn't merely assuage or turn away God's wrath from us. It actually purifies us such that God has no wrath to pour out on us because we are no longer clothed in our sin. Instead, we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The water and the blood. The blood, which we see, as I said earlier, we infuse spiritual meaning into these things. The blood, which turns away the wrath of God. The water, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And in his death, and in John's declaration of his death, John shows us just exactly how powerful the death of Jesus Christ is to transform a life. Because we see two transformed by the death of Jesus Christ. John introduces in verse 38 both Joseph of Arimathea, 
who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but he was a secret disciple because he was afraid. And Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews who had approached Jesus in John chapter 3, but had done so under the cover of darkness so that no one would see him. These two men were delivered by Christ. They were delivered from their fear. Jesus says in John chapter 12, the judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of the world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus was lifted up on that cross, when Jesus died, he drew both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus out of the darkness of their own fear and into the light. These were men who no longer had any reason to stay in the shadows. Instead, they're drawn by the death of Christ and the love that he displayed on the cross for sinners to his side in this moment to take care of him. But here's the thing, their actions are far more significant than just showing pity to someone that had died. Roman practice for criminals who were crucified was that the family could have the body for burial. But criminals who were crucified for sedition, rebellion, for inciting uprisings, for claiming to be someone to overthrow Caesar, which was what Jesus stood condemned of, sedition, they were instead left on the cross to rot and be eaten. The fact that Joseph comes to Pilate and says, I would like his body, is a public declaration of his disagreement with the condemnation of Christ. It's a public declaration that he is distancing himself from the rulers, that he disagrees with the charges. He doesn't believe that Jesus should be left on that cross. He, if At very least, Jews required that the body would come down, but they were not given to go into the tombs of the families. Instead, they went into a common grave. So the fact then that Nicodemus participates in this and he and Joseph go and they take Jesus Christ, they care for Jesus' body and they put him in a private tomb is a declaration that they disagree with the rulers. It's a declaration that they are now on the side of Jesus Christ. Both of them in this moment find that being tied to Christ in his death was greater than the position of power that was offered to them in their life. And so they take Jesus Christ's body and they care for Jesus Christ's body and they ensure that it is properly buried. His death delivered them from their darkness of their fear. His death delivers them for sacrifice, uh, delivers them not only from fear but into freedom to sacrifice and to serve. And that's what he does for you and for me as well. What John or what Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea sacrifice here is far more than just their possessions. It's their position. It's their reputation in the community as they are putting themselves out of favor with the Jewish council and into the body of Jesus Christ. And the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, when we are living for ourselves in the darkness of our own sins, hiding in that secret place where we are allowing our 
guilt and our shame to cover us over because it may feel safer that nobody knows what's going on. It may feel safer to just deal with it in secret and in private and under the darkness of my sin and this place. And it may seem painful to go out into the light where I might be exposed. It's only in the light where there is hope and there is healing. And Jesus' death on the cross is the place that says that he has already drank the cup of God's wrath for whatever that sin is that would keep you in the dark place. That you don't need to be afraid to come out of that dark place and into the life because Jesus has swallowed up all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of the punishment that could possibly come your way, period. And as long as you hide in the darkness, you're declaring that Jesus is not enough. I don't really trust that to be true. But it's the death of Jesus Christ that draws us out of our fear to be seen, to be known for the failures that we are, for the creatures that are comfortable with the darkness. And he frees us from that fear that would leave us paralyzed into freedom to see one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to sacrifice for one another if we would just let go of the control, if we would just let go of the fears, if we would just let go of the positions and the prominence and the power that we're afraid that we will lose if we step into the light, Jesus Christ will set us free. Not because of what we bring him, not because of what we offer him, but because of what he brought us, which is his life. What he offers us, which is his death. In that hymn, Rock of Ages, Auglis Toplady goes on in the second verse, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. What are you clinging to today? What are you holding firm to? Is it some false security in your sin that nobody knows and as long as nobody knows I'm safe? Is it a position of power or prominence? Is it a reputation? Is it a something else? Is it your own works righteousness that says I'm good enough, I'm okay God? The invitation and the command from John to every single one of us is not just wanting us to know that Jesus actually really died not just wanting us to know that Jesus was really the king. He wants us to believe that he died for me and surrender that he might be king for me and over me. Who's king of your life today? Is it Jesus? If not, then I would invite you right here, right now, just let it all go. And cry out to Christ, you died for me. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure.